0: Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to Ska Boom Stories, which is the audio companion to my book, Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. The goal of the Ska Boom podcast is to share a behind-the-scenes look at what readers can expect from the book. In 400 plus pages across 19 chapters, I've attempted to knit together the origin stories of groups of passionate musical pioneers who helped create a uniquely American version of ska and reggae. Though my band Bigger Thomas, originally called Panic, is not featured in Ska Boom, our 80s American ska story contains a lot of the same trials and tribulations experienced by the 18 bands whose stories I've documented. That is to say, The Human Condition, set to a ska and reggae soundtrack. In this episode, I'm speaking with my longtime bandmate and close friend, Roger Apollon Jr., about his memories of the early days of the band. Though we missed out on the ska boom of the mid-90s, the original lineup of our band broke up in 1991, our story is one you should know. We were the very first ska band from New Jersey. The earliest version of Panic came together in the late summer and early fall of 1988. I was smitten with two-tone ska, and after playing an apprenticeship in a punk band, I decided I just wanted to play ska music. I put up a flyer around the campus of Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and over the course of two weeks, heard back from Roger and trumpet player Kevin Shields. Along with me and guitarist Steve Parker, we formed the initial core of the band, rehearsing a few times with a drum machine. We were later joined by drummer Jim Cooper, saxophonist Steve Mikey, and trumpet player Sean Moore. Though we barely knew each other, we had a shared passion to make music, which was intense, and we wanted to make things happen. Such is the hubris of youth. The original version of the band also featured a talented Jamaican-American vocalist from Washington, D.C. named Ken Miggy Gale. Miggy was a good friend of Roger's. Early on, Roger kept saying, we need to get my friend Miggy in the band. The first time Roger introduced me to Miggy, it was clear he had that special something. Miggy was confident, outgoing, and could literally talk to anyone. But more importantly, he and Roger together brought a real rude boy credibility to our very ragtag group of ska misfits. They looked great together and helped channel the two-tone vibes we were all about. When Roger and Miggy performed together during our first rehearsal, the band immediately took several huge steps up. Though our early sound was still raw, Roger and Miggy's winning personalities and ska knowledge carried us along while we were still working out all the musical kinks. In the three short months Miggy was in the band, things moved in fast forward. After our first show in front of 500 people at a large lecture hall on the campus of Rutgers University, opening up for the New York Citizens we were suddenly on the musical radar. And after our next show at the iconic Court Tavern in New Brunswick, things went even faster. We recorded a demo that features Roger and Miggy and contains the definitive versions of several of our original songs, including Ska in My Pocket. Sadly, Miggy left the band just as things were starting to take off for us, but he has my respect for what he brought to us and what he taught me about confidence on stage and the love and passion he had for ska and reggae. Have a listen to Ska In My Pocket featuring Roger and Miggy.
1: Hey Roger, what's that you have there in the jungle in your pocket making you walk like soul. Yo Miggy man, it's Miss Ska. you Yeah boy, it's my Wanna man. Ska In My Pocket. I've got some Sky In My Pocket. Ska In My Pocket.
0: Part of the beauty of the oral history format is the variety and diversity of voices and points of view. That's why I felt it was important for me to speak to Roger to hear his memories from those key years of 1988 to 1991, when we were part of the wave of bands helping to popularize an American version of ska. Roger Apollon, welcome to the Ska Boom podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, man. What did two-tone music mean to you when you were uh, first getting into ska? two-tone music to me
2: um was my it it, it, i didn't know what i was feeling in the 80s being a teenager i guess 13 14 right around the time this was happening maybe a little bit younger um and i didn't know what i was feeling i but i knew that i i i was a, a black kid living in a white neighborhood all white neighborhood listening to black and white music and um And I, I didn't, you know, and sometimes I felt like out of place and I didn't have words for racism or any of that stuff. But when I saw the specials album at that two guys or Corvettes or wherever I found that album, when I saw the cover, the, the, just the cover just spoke to me. It just, it, 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 it crystallized what I've been trying to say with music, which was a band of black and white people doing music. And I didn't even know what was inside the album. But just the image alone in the 80s, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of modern black, ba- black and white bands that I saw out there. So seeing black and white people on the cover looking cool, wearing suits, it just made sense to me. It just crystallized something I just felt inside instinctively. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm going to be the US ambassador. You know, once I found out it was from the UK, I said, I'm going to be the US ambassador of Tutu, and I'm going to represent this movement happening in the UK in the United States. And, and, and that was that, that's where it started. Sure. And
0: then I listened to the record. (laughs) (laughs) So, so what, what caught your attention first? It was the visuals of the
2: The visuals. It was the visuals. It was something about that cover, something about the, the, their stance, something about the suits, something about the black and white guys in a black and white picture with checkerboards around it um it, it you know it just i don't know it exuded cool it ex, it exuded something you know it was the 80s everything was pink miami vice colors you know pop adam and the ants everything was very kind of bright and out there and this was a stark black and white um cool ethos and i just like these guys just look cool whatever music they're doing i don't know but I want to hang out. I want to know what these guys are doing. I want to know how they know each other because they look like they hang out together. And at the time, you know, I either hung out with all white people or all black people. And rarely was I in like mixed company. So I'm like, where were these guys living where they could look this cool all together? So the visual really, I don't know, it's something about the visual that it just stuck with me. I I couldn't get off the visual. I mean, you know, I just hoping the record was good.
0: And- when you listened to the record, was it good? Uh,
2: you know, it was weird. <laughs> you know, got to be honest. It was the first song, uh, Message to You, Rudy, which I thought was like, again, it was like Slow Down, Bob Marley. Like, all right, like, this sounds like Bob Marley. And again, my Scott knowledge was zero. So I'm like, uh, whatever. And then the next song is Do the Dog, which is like this punk rock song. And I'm like, all right, Um And then I think the next song is either up to you or something like that. And I'm just like, I'm into it, but I just don't know where it's going. But I know that, but I, but I'm starting to notice a trend. I'm starting to notice a theme in the the sound of the music, something about it's familiar, you know, and I, I, I didn't know it was ska then, but I found out later it was ska. It was that syncopation. It was the reggae. It was the punk. It was something about that sound. And by the time I heard gangsters, I think when I heard it, I was like, I think I might have heard this song before. You know, I think they might've, I might have—I probably heard it on the radio or something like that, or on LIR or something. I don't know. But by the time I heard Gangsters, I'm like, okay, this is the coolest band I know right now. This, these guys are the fucking coolest band right now. Um, and then when I flipped the side over, uh, Monkey Man, uh, it just—it just kept going. Um, and I just—I don't know. And then I listened to that album over and over and over and over. And over and over and over, and then I bought the tape, and bought and then listened to the tape over and over and over and over and over
0: and over. And over and, over. And, and did that was that the gateway to other two tone bands like the Selector and the English Beat for you?
2: It, it wasn't until much late. Yes, yes. It, it, I I you know I really get into moods like you know Bob Marley. I went down the Bob Marley path. Like I didn't listen any. I didn't listen to anything but Bob Marley for a while. Then it was Steel Pulse, nothing but Steel Pulse. Then it was like, I get really, you know, obsessed. So it was nothing but that's first specials record for at least like a year. And then I went to Cheap Thrills in uh, New Brunswick and um, picked up uh, this uh, the English beat, you know, because you know, I'm like, oh, what else is out there? And I, I just can't stop it. Oh, my. I mean, I really love the specials. But these guys were just, they had the 80s stuff with them. I felt like they were like the brighter version of the specials and the songs are faster. They're a bit more, I mean, still socially conscious, but a bit more just kind of dancey and the production was just so clean and the, and the, and the harmonies um, and ranking Roger. And then, you know, you know my name is roger so i'm just like <laughs> there's a guy wait you know it's the kind of the first time i actually kind of saw myself possibly like doing this like being in a band like i saw myself like ranking roger and people are like oh ranking roger oh yeah ranking roger it's just like the and just automatically i never felt like i re- really related um so closely to um you know uh, a performer like bob marley i did but you know, I, I couldn't grow dreads, you know, although I was smoking weed, I was smoking weed, but I wasn't, you know, I couldn't grow dreads. But ranking Roger, I mean, he's a black Brit and I'm like, I'm a black American. So like, there's some, you know, I felt there was some commonality there um, until obviously, you know, I, I had the biggest man crush in the world when I saw like Fishbone. Until It was ranking Roger until freaking Angelo. Like Angelo just was like Fishbone, just, just, Made everything possible. Um, but that's a whole other story. But I know we're still talking about. Whatever.
0: No, no, that's, that, that's fine. That the same story. I, I, yeah, I think it is part of the same story because I, I, I was going to ask you did you get inspired by those records to become fashion wise a rude boy? Because absolutely, fact is, the first time I ever saw you and we didn't know each other and you didn't see me seeing you, you were dressed like a rude boy. I saw you at the New Brunswick train station and you had on a uh, creepers, and you had on, I think, I don't know if it was a Specialist t-shirt or a, a t-shirt I think that said it
2: was a Ska t-shirt that had the, uh, the, the like the Madness Dancing guys yes. along the side. Yes,
0: and I you had a black blazer on, and I, at the time, I had just decided I wanted to start a Ska band, and I was like, am I seeing a ghost? Like, <laughs> what the fuck, who is this dude? And then you, I was think I was getting on the train to New York, I don't know if you were getting on or getting off, and I didn't see you again, and I just said, I got to meet this guy. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, I'm curious, like what, how, what ins- were you inspired to sort of begin dressing like that? And if so, did you then dress like that all the time?
2: So it was kind of like, um, it was like, you know, I get, you know, well, actually not as serious as coming out, but I've always been a Ska fan and right, you know, when I got to college, when I got really deep into it and I, and I, I had a chance to dress myself because in high school, this was like senior year of high school, like the special. And what and year school. was this? Uh, 85. Okay. Um, so this is after, this is even after, because um, I, uh, the height of it, um, because I got the specials album from like a bargain bin at, at Corvettes that summer. So, um, so this was past the 81, or I, I'm, and you have to correct me at the height when that, when did the album drop, Mark? Um, 79. Almost, 79. So we're talking way, way out, way late to the party. Um, but, um, You know, when I saw the albums and I had a chance to go to college and get and dress myself, and I was like, right, I'm going to commit to this. So I started with the black pants and the uh, and the t shirts, and you couldn't get any sky. You can get any other band, you can get any shitty band, like Poison, whatever t shirts, whatever. Uh, specials, you had to do mail order. And I don't know if you
0: remember that you remember the mail order magazines that how all the t-shirts and the punk shirts. There was one, um, um, I spent all my lawn mowing money on called burning airlines, which was this mail order in Trenton, New Jersey of all places. Um, they literally had, it was like the most amazing catalog right of literally every new wave punk right. post punk band everything in the world yeah. sues you and you paid through the nose paid for through it. the
2: nose but you know you saved your pennies and and i, I remember in this magazine they uh, they had one page for ska's t-shirt they had like seven pages of goth and like 27 pages of like new wave ska there was like the ska t-shirt there was uh there was like, uh, I think uh, a specials t-shirt, you know, with them, you know, all in the line, you know, with Mad, you know, there was the, uh, I'm sorry, madness t-shirt all in the line. There might've been a specials t-shirt. So I bought the Sky one. It took like three weeks. And when it came, I wore that shirt to death <laughs> with my black pants. And then I went to a thrift store and found a black blazer um, somewhere, uh, an antique boutique um, somewhere downtown. At the same time, when I went to Village Cobbler, uh, and, and bought my pair of creepers all based on, I'll remind it back in 80. Uh, so, uh, I did all this, I think right around 86, 87, like sophomore year of college, because that's right around the time I met Ken, Ken Gale, uh, Miggy. So we were playing intramural soccer together. So I saw him on the field wearing his soccer stuff and we were talking, whatever, And then later on, like, mind you, I never really saw him on campus before at Livingston College in New Brunswick, but I see him later on and I see him wearing like a pork pie hat, creepers, like a a vest. I'm like, yo, you're a rude boy. He was like, oh, yeah, man. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm from D.C. And, you know, you don't remember, Mickey, like he can talk. (laughs) You know, you think I can talk. (laughs) But Miggy can talk. And he just spins the yarn of how he knows every major ska band, Toasters, Fishbone, blah, 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 blah. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's to Toasters, Fishbone. He's like, well, you never heard these bands? Da, 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 da. No. I like, fine. Just so happens Toasters happen to be coming to Bush campus like in a couple of days' time. So he's like, come with me to the show on Saturday. It's the Toasters. They're from New York. I know those guys. I'll get you in. I was like, great. Get to his dorm, smoke freaking mad weed, go over to freaking Bush. We get there too early. It's like three people there. They're still setting up. We're like, right. We go wander around Bush, smoke even more weed, come back, pretty good crowd. And the toasters are up there. Uh, the toasters are up there. And bro, it's Lionel, Sean, Bucket, like killer lineup. And they're just murdering it. Just killing it and people are going nuts and i'm just like i've never seen a ska band before live i didn't think there were any american ska bands at the time it was only specials and english beat and selector for me at that time so seeing an american ska band i lost my shit i was like what so i'm up there dancing and i see him pulling people up on stage uh, or you know i'm just like oh man i wish i can get up there so i'm skanking whatever towards the end of the set they decided to do Matt Davis again. I guess they did it early. They opened it with it, and they did it at the end of the set. And then I'm skanking, and Bucket looks, you know, locks eyes at me, and like nods his head up, and he's like, you know, you know, like come on on stage. And I'm like, I jump up on stage, you know, Mark. When I tell you, when I got up there, man, I was like, this is it. This <laughs> is it. <laughs> this is. I felt like fucking a million dollars. I'm up on the stage dancing with a band behind me and Lionel and Sean are dancing with me. I'm just like, this is the best. Like, I can't, like, what? What, like the adrenaline. It was, and the drums right there. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I didn't know I wanted to be in a band at that moment. But Mark, I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that moment being up on stage with the Toasters in 86 or 87. And I was just like, and then after the show, true to his word, like I meet Lionel. He gives us, he gives Miggy a copy of Recriminations and New York hit and run. We immediately go back to his dorm room and listen to those two albums over and over again for like <laughs> like five hours until, <laughs> until like 4am. Just every song on every, I know those two albums, inside and out front to back, right? front to back, Criminations and New York hit and run all those songs. Um, praying man, uh, bro. Um,
0: brighter a, days,
2: brighter by days by the, that's such a great song. I mean, great, great songs, um, great bands. And from there it was like, the clothes, I'm I'm like, this is me. Like, oh, so also about the clothes, you know, I went to Catholic school, clothes were a big thing, and I'm, you know, fashion guy, whatever. So I would wear, I had my hip hop clothes and I had my preppy clothes. And there were two different sets of clothes that I wore in high school because two of those crowds, some, all my black friends were at, were at school. So I had my hip hop clothes, my, my lead jeans, my shell toes. And then at home, I changed into my preppy clothes to be around the neighborhood because they're still predominantly white. So when I got to Rutgers, Those worlds collided and my clothing, like I didn't know how to dress because I didn't know who I was going to see that day and how to be. So the two-tone thing came at the perfect time of me of like, you know what? This is who I am. This This is my statement. I'm a rude boy, which means, you know, and if you don't know what a rude boy
0: is, then Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that, uh, like I said before, seeing you on that train platform was like a revelation to me because we were sort of, in some ways, living parallel existences because I had gotten into the music a little bit before you and I was yearning, man, like sweating wanting to be in a ska band and not really knowing how to do that. Like, how do you, and this, again- for any, anybody who's listening who's, you know, born after, you know, 1985, no internet, no cell phones. So, um, you know, you had to meet people like the old fashioned way. And so, like I said, when I saw a fleeting glimpse of you, I knew that this was possible, right? I'd see, I saw a vision, at least I didn't know if you were real or not. Um, That's really funny because honestly, at that moment in time, that was really the
2: first time In my college career, my junior year, I think I was like junior, senior year probably, where I finally felt comfortable in my own skin. You know, I think my my, uh, conversion to the church of Two-Tone came right on time of like the biggest identity crisis I had in my life at that time. And, you know, Two-Tone fit, it just fit, it answered, it ticked a lot of boxes for me. Just, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to explain myself like if this is who I am.
0: Yeah. You know, for me, it was also a lifesaver, probably in different ways. You know, um, uh, for me, it was also an identity thing, probably different than your identity crisis. But for me, it was more like uh, a way to look at the world. Yep. You know, a philosophy for living through music. So that's why um, I also wanted to be in a band with black and white people, like the whole – ethos of two tones spoke to me on a really, really intense level. And I bought in like, you know, Jerry Dammers, um, you know, what he, what he did there completely brainwashed me like for, for, for the better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm the same. I feel the same way. I feel that this was the music that I was meant to do. This was something, you know, people always say, you know, uh, you know, you don't choose the music, the music chooses you. And I felt like Ska chose me. I, I I had no business trolling through the Corvettes thing or whatever bin. You know, how would I know that a picture would just set me on this path? But it, as soon as I heard the songs, as soon as I understood what was going on, as soon as I started to hear the themes and all these bands, I was like, they're speaking what I'm living. I'm living this life over here. You know, I'm living exactly what they're feeling Whether it's going on in the UK, I'm living now. And, and I, you know, and I want to, wanted to spread the word of like black and white unity at the time. It was just now black and white unity seems so, you know, I sound like an old man now, but you know, it's, it's not a big deal, you know, uh, black and white people working together and seeing black and white people in a band, you know, uh, in any kind of music, rock, hip hop, black and white musicians. But back then it was a big deal. Um, and, uh, and I think people forget that. And I think when you're in a band with black and white musicians, you are making a statement.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, it's so interesting you say that because, you know, I interviewed so many people, uh, black people for Ska Boom, and every single one of them said almost virtually the same thing to me that you did, which is that as a young black person in the eighties, um, it couldn't you couldn't overestimate how much the specials and two-tone meant to be to them as a young black person. Yeah. You know, um, uh, Lionel, uh, Bernard of the toasters told me that seeing that specials cover to him was a game changer because, you know, you just didn't see black people on MTV. You didn't see black people on the covers of albums. Right and so it was like it meant so much so you know it's interesting that you also had that experience i i i don't know if the specials realize that i i did mention that to to linval once when i spoke to him i don't think i said i don't think you understand the impact that that your album cover your music and you appearing on saturday night live had on people of my generation you know who were really into this it was a real eye opener for us yeah you know you're not
2: used to, we, we weren't used to seeing ourselves, you know, leading bands in, in a genre that is not soul and R&B or, or, or reggae, you know, traditionally black music or played on what they call black radio at the time. And radio was a lot more, I think prom radio is probably more segregated now than I think about it than it was back then, but that's for another podcast. But, um, you know, seeing, you know, black men and women front bands with mostly white musicians and be the focus point, you know, and, and be, and, and be, you know, people wanting to see them and, and, you know, and swagger, you know, seeing the specials on Saturday night live. I, I didn't see the, you know, when they first saw it, but I've, I've seen the, um, you know, the YouTube video, but you know, that's swagger, you know, you're you're not even from this country, and you're coming in here and you're walking in here and you're and you're wearing these suits and you're just and you're singing and you're and you're singing against the authority in your songs in their face and for me the specials the fact that these guys are playing the crowds in london and there's national front people there and they're literally saying fuck you to their face <laughs> that's like <laughs> It's intense like you know they're going to be fascist at a show and you play the show and you play songs about them being fascist it's like do you want to get jumped after the show like that takes balls but that's what they did and for me that's just if they could do that over there well shit the least we can do is point out all the same shit that is happening here in America with the racism and and everything. And finding allies, you know, finding people cuz when you join a ska band with black and white, you know, the white members, you know, they don't, you know, well I I guess there's always going to be an element of white privilege wherever they go, but when you're in with black musicians, you got to decide whether you're going to, you know, to be with them, you become like one of them. You know, and so if your band doesn't get in to someplace because you have black musicians, the whole band doesn't go. <laughs> you know, it's not like the white musicians can say, Well, we're gonna play because they're not fresh fascists against they're not racist against us, you guys stay at the house. You know, the whole band has to decide we're on this journey, like like fuck that. We're not going to play the show or deal with this bullshit. And you need, you know, it becomes a brotherhood. I get I think two home two tones becomes a brotherhood because I don't know what it's like to be a white person and have black friends in the eighties openly, but you know, there must've been some challenges that went along with that. I mean, believe it, a black person was hard enough. So, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yeah.
2: So, you know, that's what I, I, I kind of see two tone as, as like a, you know what, we're us, you know, it is us. It's, it's, there's black, there's white, then there's two tone, you know? And I felt like two tone was the the third option of like, I don't want to choose. You know why should I choose black or white? You know because I feel like at the time, if you're a black person, like I feel society pushes you to stay in this box, and as a, as a white person, society pushes you to stay in another box, and um, and I feel a lot of people, you know, f- you know follow the path of least resistance and follow follow along, which is fine, but why should I have to choose a box? Why, why can't I have both boxes? Why can't it be both black and white? Right? Why why must be why must be black or white? You know. So again, two tone it it, it doesn't solve that, but it just shows me the possibility.
0: Possibility, yeah. I think that's the power of it. Is um, choose you can choose this if you want, and if you do, your life may change. So right, and it did for me. I mean, you know, um, you know, I as I said, I saw you, and then it was around that same time that I put up these flyers around the campus of uh Rutgers uh, and on all the you know Rutgers for anybody who doesn't know Rutgers is spread over like five different campuses in separate parts mm-hmm. of um of around New Brunswick and there's this crazy bus system and you know you have to ride if you have a class on one campus you have to get the other way you ride buses between them so I was like I want to reach the the biggest number of people so I would jump on every bus and um and put these flyers up. You really um, did. T- you went on all the buses. I went on all the buses. Like the I was double E. Yep. I was committed. I was committed. I wouldn't go on them. I would when they would pull up. I would run on and slap it on and then jump off. Wow. Um, so I did this with the hope that you know there might be some people around the New Brunswick area who were also into ska. And you were the first person to respond to the ad I put my phone number really? on it. And I put, you know, um, literally, I guess it was, it was clear if you were reading the ad that I was, the, I think the only, only two instruments <laughs> I didn't put on there were, were, were bass and guitar, Wait, but I I was, like, for everything. I saw that too. I was like,
1: Hmm, it
0: sounds like it needs a whole band, but <laughs> I could at least, get,
2: I could at least got the singing part maybe.
0: <laughs> so you call me up, right. And, uh, we talk for a little bit and, and we make a plan to meet. I think I gave you my address. Yes. And I didn't live that far away from where you were. Right. Um, You show up and I open the door. What are your memories of meeting me for the first
2: time? (laughs) I, I, You know, Mark, I still see it very clearly. You had your black Fishbone t-shirt on. Um, I think it had the yellow logo on it, but just with the, you know, and yeah, the the Jafro and the uh,
0: for, and the for, for, for anybody who doesn't know what Roger's talking about, <laughs> I call it a Jufro. So I had a humongous head of curly hair, which we Jafro. affectionately refer to as a
2: Jufro. Yes, I know, but I like Jaffro better because okay. it's more like a Jewish afro. Jafro. <laughs> anyway, so um, had the Jaffro, and you looked like a really nice guy, which made me worried because I was like, oh no, you know, this is probably like a music fan, you know, and maybe not like a musician. You didn't look like a musician. So and I didn't know what I was looking for, but not that. Maybe somebody was who looked more like um uh I don't know, Horace Panther, like you know, or like Terry Hall or any of the specials. It's fair
0: to say that I did not at all look like a rude boy. I had you, no rude boy credentials at that point. I didn't. didn't know where to find those kind of clothes. And okay. I certainly my hair was was definitely gonna get in the way. Yeah, of, I just uh, was like that kind okay. of haircut.
2: Yeah, I was like, okay, he's got, well, he's got the fishbone t-shirt, so we we got that. But I was like, all right. So I was like, "Hey." And you're like, "Hey, you know, hey, I was going to mark I'm like, hey, Roger." I'm like, "All right." Like, you know, I'm already thinking like exit plan, honestly, cuz I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just not sure, Mark. You didn't seem you didn't seem very you look kind of surprised to see me too. I was like, "Oh, man." You know, I, I hope Well,
0: I to be honest with you, on the phone, I could not tell whether you were black or white, ah, true. That I is I did true. not know what to expect. This is now. Did the you internet. know what? Would, what did you think of of my voice on the well, phone? Well, I knew you were white. Okay, but I thought you were like again, like like cool
2: white guy, like Horace Panther like you know, like mm-hmm. uh, or Paul Simonon. Like when I'm thinking, because you on the phone, I think you, you revealed that you said you played the bass. Yes. So I, I automatically thought of all. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: Scott bass player, The coolest that. bass players you could think of.
2: <laughs> so, so you know, you had the guy from, uh, you know, English Beat who was kind of quirky. Um, but, you know, he had kind of like a weird style. I'm like, all right, maybe he's quirky. Or maybe he's like Horace. Or maybe he's like Paul Simonon. Like, yeah, probably Paul Simonon. Like, cool leather jacket. He's probably like rude boyed out. It's going to be awesome. Or like Bucket. Because I saw Bucket from the Toasters. He had the creepers. I'm like, none of the above. So I was like, all right. And then I went inside I'm like, I saw Kevin Shields <laughs> did not inspire. He looked like a rockabilly guy, you know, and he had a, a six pack of the mini nips uh, of the nips of Budweiser. And he's like sitting there,
0: said he couldn't play the trumpet because he just got his molars out. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and again, for, for anybody just who following along at home, Kevin was also, also responded to my ad. I had put the ad up at this kind of iconic punk rock club in New Brunswick called the Court Tavern, which Kevin was a a regular at. And so I had set up this first meeting. Like I had no idea what to expect. And it was me and this guy, Steve Parker, who started the band with me and Roger and Kevin. So you had basically had Roger, this very um, elegant, uh, cool (laughs) black guy, and Kevin, who was like this rockabilly dude. Like it's almost like... Worlds collide. Yeah,
2: it was definitely like, okay.
0: And then last
2: but not least, Steve Parker, who really looks like an accountant. Like you look like at least, you know, a guy who's like into music. Steve looked like he didn't even – he wasn't even into music. He just – the nerdiest glasses, like almost like a bowl haircut, just – and he said nothing. He just sat there with his guitar noodling on his guitar. And I was just like, okay, so this guy doesn't talk. <laughs> it's like it's not it was not it wasn't looking good for the home team. It was a little awkward at first. It was awkward. So I'm like, all right. Well, you know, what do you got? And then again, I'll I'll I'll, I'll say it to the day I die. We pop the tape in and man, the music, the music is what bonds us together. It always is what bond, bonds us together. We'll never like that's our bond. That's the music the music it all started with the music and when I heard the songs I think I might have heard uh, more and more but might have been the first track and I was kind of like all right you know not bad and then I heard um uh, Loose Threads I think I think Loose Threads was the song I still love that song I think I heard the demo of that on the tape and it just blew my mind I just remember thinking this is the coolest ska I've, I think I've ever
1: heard Thank you.
2: ever heard like it was like uh, it was like um, uh, it was like the Smiths meet ska kind of like you know mm. it was like this kind of I just thought it was one of those I was like alright that song alone I was like okay if these guys can write a song like that you know let's see what we can do
0: and- yeah I mean f- for all of his anti-social tendencies um, Steve was a incredibly talented, brilliant uh, musician, songwriter, and, um, musician. Incredible. I brought him. You know, at that time, I wasn't the greatest bass player, but I wrote a lot of lyrics, and I would write these lyrics and hand them over to him. And two days later, he would come back with these songs, or I would give him a bass line, and he would somehow make my crappy bass line sound good. Yeah, um, and so. We had spent a couple of months before basically woodshedding, and I think we probably wrote almost all of the songs that ended up on, not all of them, but most of the songs. Yeah, most of That ended up songs. on that first record. Because I think shortly after we met you, we all wrote Ska in My Pocket together. Yeah. And Chaos together. Yeah. And you came ready to work. That yeah. I remember. Yeah. Um, and you were like, this is great. Why don't we write a song? And we were like, okay. <laughs> and so we didn't have a drummer. All we had was this little Casio keyboard with a, um, a really shitty drum preset. <laughs> preset, and I think y- we gave that to you. And you would say, "I remember you'd go one, two, two three, four, and, four then go... and hit the button, and then we would the murk- try and work out like. So Um I remember that was the thing that impressed me. Was I think we met like twice a week. Yeah, the second time. We came out of there with two new songs. Yeah, "Scout in My Pocket" and "Chaos." Yeah, because and, um, I went home.
2: I went home with those that that tape. Well, two things happened. I went home with the tape, and then I saw your record collection, which was incredible, incredible record collection. I mean, I didn't even know. I I didn't even. And at that time, mind you, I'm literally just. It's it's this is 1988. Was yes, right.
0: Yes. So, at summer the time, of 88,
2: hot summer 88, fuck. hot as hell in New Brunswick, and there's no AC, we got fans on college freaking apartments, which are anyway. And, um, you know, um, summer of 8, you know, it was 1988. Uh, you know, at that point, my knowledge of Sky was literally specials, English beat selector, fishbone. I knew nothing of Skylights, Prince Buster, I didn't know any of that stuff. So when you, when I saw those, you had those albums in your collection, I'm like, what is this? You're like, oh, you never heard of Skylights? I'm like, oh yeah, you, you can let me, you can borrow. I think I might've borrowed four or five records that first time in the tape. And I went home and I spent like three steamy days in my apartment <laughs> um, listening to that tape and all those records. Um, and I was working, I was living in this apartment by myself. My roommate was, in, was working a summer job back someplace else. So I had the part to myself. So I'd literally work. Um, st peter's during the daytime come back home and you know get a pizza or gyro crack a beer and listen to these albums and these tapes for hours so by the time the second meeting came i already was like okay like i decided like the second night like all right we're gonna write some music we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do an like i was like we're gonna do an album i didn't even know how to even do an album but i was like I got to do an album with these guys. We're just going to do an album. So like when we got together again, I'm like, we got to write a song. Like we just, because in my mind, like in my mind, I thought we're going to write a song and then write an album. Cause I I was naive. We're going to write an album. (laughs) We're going to record it like in a week. And then we're going to get, somebody's going to hear, we're going to get signed and we're going to get, go be on MTV. And I didn't have to finish school in September.
0: Great plan.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Little did I know. Even but yeah, you came in
0: and, and you wrote Scott in my pocket. You wrote the lyrics to Scott in my pocket. If I remember on the spot. Well, Steve, it, it's funny because Steve, we were working on
2: other stuff. Here's how we're, I remember it. I don't know how, I rem- how you remember it, but we were, we were working on the other songs. We were working on more and more that stuff. And then Steve, and then I was like, we should write a song. And then Steve's like, I got a riff. And we're like, all right, how's it go? he's like I just ding 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 <laughs> no he just had he just had the uh, chorus he just he's just like I got the sky in my pocket I got the sky in my pocket he just kept repeating that over and over again I'm like all right and then he's like what's the second part then he had this other second part it was like all right and I just remember just everything just came together so quickly because it was just such a one of those songs I just one of those silly throwaway songs that you just write it whatever. And then I remembered I rhymed day and day later on. Which is another story. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you write songs fast. Or when you're high. <laughs> or both. <laughs> <laughs> but it came together so quick. And then when we, when the, I remember when we finished the song, we were like, did we just write a song?
1: You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then we're like, we should write another one. And I don't know if we wrote Chaos the same day or the next day,
0: but. But it was quick. It was within like two weeks. I think we had, you know, we still didn't have a drummer, but I think we had, you know, like 10 songs, something crazy like that. Cause it was just, it was fun. It was new.
2: And we were all just, I don't know. We were all on the same page. I just felt like we were all on the same page. We all wanted, we loved ska and we wanted to make it sound good, you know? Um, And I just thought like, I never, like I I sang in the shower for so long, you know, I never thought pretending to be staying for most of the time. And I just never thought I'd actually be in a band. And I felt like- Wait, let's, let's,
0: let's be honest though, Roger. um, And not everybody probably knows this. I know this because I've been friends with you for a long time and and just quickly talk about this. But at one point you were in like a performance singing, dancing group, right? Like when you were in middle school?
2: Aristo. Yeah.
0: All right. True. Let's be, let's be honest. You weren't just singing in the shower. Now here's the thing. This performance group was really a neighborhood group. All You you showed me a picture. It looked like the Jackson five to me.
2: (laughs) So yes, you know what? You're, you're actually right.
0: So like the Haitian Jackson five
2: the Haitian. Yeah. It was literally a group of family, family, friends, all Haitian families who lived out in West orange, South orange. And two of the girls, Lynn and Jesse Mondiston, um, they were sisters and they were really talented and they would, we'd be at their house for so many hours. Like let's do these dance routines. Let's do these singing routines. And we would just literally for fun, do these dancing and singing routines in their basement for fun. Now we didn't know we were, I mean, I didn't know it was music school. I didn't know it was like performance school at the time. It was literally something to keep ourselves out of our parents' hair. But we did that. For, <laughs> now that you think about it, Now that I think about, it, we did that for like seven years, you know? Um, and we, at, at, at the end of every year. So Lynn and Jesse would come up with the routines. I'll go, I'll say it quickly. and we move on. They come up the, with the routine and we work on this routine for the whole show for like two or three, like three or four months then once we got it perfect, they'd rent out a hall somewhere in East Orange or Orange. And we'd do a performance. It was literally just for our family and friends. And I don't know who organized the ticket parks as we were kids, whatever. But And people would come and do it. And we would do Beat It and stuff like that. Um, and again, this was kind of – I never took it seriously, Mark. That I never really um, thought that that was anything. I just thought that was just like playtime, like you know, part of growing up. It wasn't until years later that like the city gardens playing city gardens all the time that it was training. Um,
0: yeah. Because you, you, I remember I didn't know shit about music. I didn't know how to read music. I didn't know what key we were in most of the time. And it quickly became clear to me, like you knew what you were talking about. Like you knew harmonies, you knew yeah. how to play the piano. So you knew when I was playing my bass lines wrong. And you would <laughs> kind of point your finger up like that. I'm supposed to move my fingers up the fretboard. Yeah. I, I didn't know what you, you like, assumed that I knew that you pointing your finger. I man, know I was supposed up or to down. To what note, but what I didn't note? know what you, were do, what you were pointing at, man. Yeah. So I, but, but that was impressive to me because you know, you downplay it a lot, but you came into the band with significant performing on stage skills and also like music theory which was pretty important to us because a couple of us didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> wow. That's um. thanks for saying that Mark. I never really realized
1: that. Honestly, Yeah.
0: And I've always, you always downplay that. You always, always say that you sang in the shower and like, no, you didn't sing in the shower. You were performing in front of crowds in, you know, East Orange or Orange, wherever. But you, you know, you knew what you were doing. Like so, I, I. But I, I think people don't know that about you. And I thought, you know, it's it's worth people knowing that. It's it's true. I. I it's yeah.
2: I, I don't talk about it because it's something. It's
0: not even like uh, people. You got to see these pictures, though. I'll have, uh, Roger, you got to send me one of these pictures so I can post it. I've got pictures. This. Yes, I've got pictures. I mean, somewhere. you guys. It really, it's the Haitian Jackson Five, but I think it was an important, <laughs> important part of your your musical journey. Another important part of your musical journey was, you know, you and I had just met, and I said to you, "Hey, Ranking Roger is performing <laughs> at City Gardens. Do you want to go?" Now, again, at this point, English Beat and general public had broken up. Ranking Roger was on his own. This is this is again the summer of 1988, yeah. and. Um, you say to me, oh, shit, yeah, I want to see Ranking Roger. So we make plans to go down to City Gardens. And there's a little bit of this in the book, but I want right. you to talk about it in a little bit more depth about what that experience <laughs> of going with me to City Gardens for the first time was like for you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the legendary story. It, it, but it is, I mean, it's funny because it does, yeah, you know, Uh it does figure in so much into the history of the band because that's where we met Steve Mikey. Um, if we don't go to that show, Steve's not in the band, you know. Um, but, um, but also it was kind of the first, you know, non business trip that we had, you know, because a lot of it was, you know, rehearsing and we hung out a little bit afterwards, but you know, I had my crowd and everybody had theirs. But the Ranking Rogers show was big because this is the only chance I'm going to sh- at the time I don't, I don't you know I don't think the specials or the english beat are ever getting back together again and I'll never see them again because at the time they were either broken up or you know playing in the UK and so Rankin Roger is here I'm like shit I got to see the Rankin Roger fuck like and you're like I got to go so I'm like let's go and then my fr- I got a friend Clay from home and uh you know, he's like, oh yeah, I'm coming with this guy, uh, Michael, who came to the brewery the other day. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. It's insane. He's like, yeah, you know, I, me and my guy, Michael, we're coming down. We want to come visit you. I'm like, hey man, but look, um, I, I'm going to the show in Trenton. So if you're coming, you know, you got to come to me to the this show. And I think I might've got back to you like, hey man, I got a couple of friends coming. Can you get more tickets or whatever? And you're like, yeah, sure. Whatever. So long story short, they come down and this is right around the time. I think, was I starting cocaine or like, I think I was just starting to do cocaine on a. No, no, I'm, no, this is towards the end of me doing cocaine. This is senior year, right? Senior year, yeah. This is towards the end of me doing cocaine, mostly because the band is really the first time. Junior year was really difficult without getting into too much, uh, you know, detail, but you know, I was messing up in school and my parents cut me off. I had to figure out a way to finance school and I figured it out. So junior year I had to like pass classes and I started, you know, doing cocaine just as a way to get through studying, whatever. And then it became a social drug and whatever. Long story short, once I joined the band, um, I feel less and less need to do that because I'm really focused on and enjoying what I'm doing outside of school. So I don't really feel the need for that. Um, and um, I almost got shot in the face, but that's, a, that's for another podcast too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that story, but we, yeah, we'll leave that one out of this. Leave that one um, out of this one. Um, so, uh, but when Clay came down, he thought I was like my old me. So he's like, oh man, I got you. I brought all this, you know, Coke. And I was like, oh uh, yeah. I." You know, when you see a lot of Coke come through back then, because it's kind of expensive, you're hard pressed to say no. So you're like, you know what? Sure. Why not? You know, it's party night. We're going to, it's going to be out late. So at that time I had like a little, uh, <laughs> I had a little like a steamer trunk that I moved all my stuff in for college. And then I put, literally found this big mirror that had a frame on it and put it on top, made like a makeshift coffee table. So the, the tabletop was literally a mirror. Um, so you just came in, threw this Coke on it, started doing whatever. And then I think you came in either halfway through or a quarter of the way through, I whatever. I came in and I
0: was like, Oh my God. Cause I was this nice <laughs> Jewish boy from Princeton. I think I barely drank. I might smoke weed once in a while. I'd actually never seen cocaine in my life.
2: Wow. First time for everything. It's cocaine version. I was there. <laughs> um, so you walk in and I see, but you know, and I remember just being like, oh man, he's, you know, kind of thinking like, wow, he's, you know, probably shouldn't be smoking coke in front of the guy i'm gonna be in a band with but i was like ah you know whatever we're doing coke and you seem like oh yeah and i think they might offer you something they might like oh no i'm okay like right ready to go and you had a friend of yours too you didn't you bring down a friend the guy benny
0: uh, benny yes yes right yes i had my play keyboard for us for one rehearsal yes yes. he would have been perfect in the band he would have been perfect in the band so we get in my we get in my um Yes, Benny was a black guy. So we get in my car, this really run-down 1979 <laughs> Toyota Corolla, me and four black guys, and I'm driving. And you're driving down the trench. And you guys, if memory serves, are still doing coke in the back of my car on the way down the Yeah, because coke
2: Hill. is not a long-lasting drug, um, I, FYI. You know, you need to – you know, it was an hour drive or something like that. Yes. And, you know, after you do a couple of lines, like – 15 minutes into the car ride, you know, you're ready for another hit. So I think we might've put it on our fingers or put it on keys or whatever to keep things going, whatever. Uh, we tried to do it like discreetly, but you know, you can't be discreet when you're snorting. So, uh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm
0: just like, um, we got to get to, I was just so excited to see this show. Right. So we pull into the city gardens parking lot. Now I had been there before. So yes, you, know, it was nothing, you have been no, there nothing to me because i you know i knew what to expect yeah, but you have been there what was your um man i me
2: and the and i I did not know about benny but me and my two other friends clay and michael the other black people were as we're driving like you know turnpike whatever okay route one whatever you know passing the trenton prison okay fine whatever and then it's like it's getting dark and then darker and then fucked up part of town
0: yeah city gardens we, was in the hood
2: yeah and then we pull into this freaking parking lot that looked decrepit and i'm and these guys are looking at me giving me these looks like what the fuck is going on here And i'm just like i, I you know i'm giving this look like i don't know man like he said the band's down look like I, I didn't know what to say so we get out the car clay's give me his look and the only thing that's saving the fact is that there's lots of cars around, and you know there's obviously some sort of big event going on. So I'm like, all right. So we had to. It wasn't. It didn't look good, man. City Gardens is not. Trenton is and if not. You had a never homey been to place. City
0: Gardens before. It it was an intimidating looking. Game. Very intimidating. It looked like a fortress, basically. Yeah. Like no windows, just a con- concrete bunker,
2: basically. Right. And when you, when you're, when your only white friend is driving, you know, you and your black friends down to a show that you've never been to in Trenton, you know, questions started to, 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 people start telling me, I tell you, Clay and Michael shoot me these looks the whole time. Like, dude, if this is a setup, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm just like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. So we walk in and. It's like almost automatically, like God must have read our minds because we walk in, we take two steps here. This is how this is what I remember. We walk into the front door, we take two steps, we look to the right. There's a pinball machine there, and we see somebody that looks like Ranking Roger playing the pinball machine. And I don't know if you spot it or I spot it or if we say like, "Oh, is that Ranking Roger or somebody?" But we walk over, and it becomes apparently clear as we get closer that it in, it is in fact. The one and only ranking Roger, and we're, and I'm just like, I'm within 20 seconds of walking into this place, and I see the guy that I paid money to go see later. He's right there, right in front of me, playing pinball, looking down, playing pinball. I think there might have been five or six other people around him, all looking at him. I just was looking at him because he's first of all, he's tall. He's he he was tall. He was six foot and some change, it seemed like. I think he was like six two or six three, yeah. Tall. I didn't think he was so tall. And I'm looking up at this guy and I'm like, it can't be Rocky because he's so tall, but he's obviously the only guy. I just was in awe. I just sat there and then he played and then he walked away. And I just was like, I didn't know what to say after that. I just felt like that was. I could have went home after
0: that. <laughs> um, we just did incredible. talk to him though. Do you remember talking to him, right? I don't remember talking yeah, to him. I remember we being did. in awe. You no, know, you were in awe, but we did talk to him. He actually acknowledged us. Really? And, uh, yep. And um, after he was done playing pinball, you went up to him and said, Hey, my name's Roger. And uh, this is Mark. And uh, we just started a ska band <laughs> and he was like, wow, cool. Really? What's the name of the band? And you're like, we don't have a name yet, but, um, you know, we're really influenced by you and two tone. And I remember him just encouraging us. I remember him saying, that's great. Wow. You know, s- stick with it. And then I think I turned my head and I said, Oh shit. shit. <laughs> What's Sir Horace Gentleman over there. I'm like, and like no were, you way, to look, and you're like no, and I'm no like way. yes, Can't be. Can't and be. he was sitting by himself, I think, drinking a Budweiser, and yep. you went over to him because I was like in <laughs> shock and awe, and you're like, hey, Horace Panther, right? And he was like, yes, and you just, you know, I was getting to know you through through this experience. You could talk to anybody, and I remember you just chatting with him a little bit, and you came back and you said, yep, that's him. So amazing, it, you know, within the first 15 minutes of entering city gardens, we had seen two of our musical heroes to me, yeah. which is pretty extraordinary part of our, you know, our story. That's, like the universe was, was certainly suggesting to us that we were right. on, a, on the right path. I think and that's what I
2: felt. That's what I felt. That it was. I really felt that that's, you know, how often do you get to see your, 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 your heroes? You know, um, right when you walk in, I—I I, I don't know. I've—I've I, I've always felt like, you know, no matter what we've been through, the ups and the downs, or whatever, um, you know, that night just—it just—I I felt like it was destined. I felt ever since that that night actually fueled a lot of
0: it, it, everything. It, it did. It did because at that same night we met. Steve Mikey on the dance floor at that show, who happened to be a saxophone player. We were looking for a saxophone player. And I remember going home after that show, my roommate, Jim Cooper was a drummer, but had refused up to that point to play with us. (laughs) And I, I relayed this whole story to him. And he said, Oh man, I'll play drums with you guys now. That's, that's actually how Jim (laughs) sounded. And, um, like, again, within days we had almost the original lineup. We were just missing one person. So can you talk about, you mentioned Ken Gale a little earlier. Can you talk about him and how he fit into what what I'll say at this point was the Panic story. You had come up with the name Panic for the band because you were a big fan of the Smiths and Morrissey. And uh, that was a song, Panic on the Streets of London. And you said, hey, we should be Panic. And we were all like, that's amazing. That's the perfect name. So we had a name, we had almost everybody, but talk about Ken because I think I've, you know, as I've looked back on our story, I think Ken was a really important. Oh yeah. Short term, but very important part of the, of the mix. Can you talk yeah. about him a little bit? Ken. So, like, you know, I, again,
2: in its it's hindsight, you know, that um, Ken really showed me the American ska scene. Like he's the guy who just introduced me to, you know, I saw my first, he took me to my first toaster show. He took me to our first Fishbone show and both shows, he knew the bands and I got a chance to meet the toasters and I got a chance to meet Angelo and Kendall and all those guys in Fishbone at Sarah mm-hmm. Lawrence college. in like 87 when he took me up there. Cause he's like, Oh, I know the girl who does the, who does the programming. And I'm like, really? So Ken to me was the, he, I, he was like a, he was like my mentor into the game and really just like, like we were brothers, you know? And so when I told him I joined this band and, you know, I, I think I remember like when I joined the band I was like, Oh man, I got this other guy who would be perfect for the band. This guy named Kenny. He's a rude boy. You'd you be I, For some reason he was out of town or something like that. So when he came back and, and I think, it also, you know, my love and my affection for him overshadowed his actual real like talent for what he was doing, I think in hindsight. I don't think he ever was really a singer or performer. I think he kinda I think I kind of willed him into it because I saw him at that as that role and and kind of tried to make him that a bit more than he probably saw himself. But when I told him about the band and brought him on, I mean, I mean I you know, Linval in freaking um, Neville, a Neville, you know, I mean, me and Kenny, me and Miggy. Well, that I, I was never a fan of the Miggy <laughs> stage <laughs> Me name, neither, but whatever. That's that's what he wanted to call himself. Some girl said his name is Miggy. I'm like, fine, man, whatever. Um, but you know, I felt like this is two tone. You got two. It's not just me. It's me and Kenny, uh, uh in this band, and we're going to be the two front guys, and it's going to be fucking awesome, and. Honestly, for the the early days, it was awesome because he was the chat guy and the energy guy and, you know, he'd say the whole, panic, you know, like 700 times at a show, (laughs) you know, Uh, but he was, he was amazing. And he was like the, he was the, you know, I think he was like the true rude boy, like true rude boys, I feel like sometimes are like kind of fuck ups, like just, you know they're rude boys. Like they, you know, sometimes they yeah, just don't-
0: in, in, in case anybody doesn't know this, like the origin of rude boys were, were, were young men in Jamaica, mostly in Kingston who committed like petty crimes Yeah, to get, you know, you know to, to, to survive basically to, to, you know, they yeah. robbed, they robbed people and they stole in order to, you know, stay alive in the ghetto.
2: Right? Yeah.
0: You know, and you know, not that he ever did
2: any of those things, but he definitely had a rude boy swagger. Like, you know, we did our first show, which was, you know, incredible at Scott Hall at Rutgers, and it blew everybody's minds. Like, it blew us, it blew, blew our minds away up on the stage, and it blew the people who saw us minds. People were like, "There's a ska band in Jersey." People were like, "Holy shit!" It was, it was incredible. And after that, you know, rehearsals became optional. Right now, now he's the guy who needs four guests, you know, four spots for the guest list. And
0: yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It kind of went to his head very quickly, but to to me initially, Kenny was like the connector. Oh, like Kenny, I don't think I've ever met anybody who, wherever I went with him, he knew, he knew people. people. And that, you know, it's so funny. Again, when I, when I look back on all the people I interviewed and the different bands that are in, in the book, most of the bands ha- who had some success early on had that person. Yep, There was a person who had that charisma yep. and swagger and confidence. Yep. And that's what Kenny, I thought, brought to us. Because believe me, me and Steve and Jim were not the most confident guys <laughs> to, in the world. And you and and Kenny were – and, 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 and Steve this, Mikey too. Yes. I mean. And Steve Mikey was incredibly confident. And, 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 at that point as a young man, like looked like a GQ model would be, you know, he did. be honest. He was a very good looking guy. You were a good looking guy. Kenny had this swagger and, you know, and then there were the, <laughs> there were the rest of us <laughs> the, um, the, with a backing <laughs> band essentially. But, um, but I think people responded to the energy. Yes. That you guys put out. And I, yes. and, you know, we were rough around the edges. There's no doubt about that. We were not we did not have a polished sound because I think Ken might've joined us literally like 10 days before our first show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we came into that show in front of about 500 people in a, in a big lecture hall at Rutgers. And, um, we did okay.
2: Yeah. We, I mean, look, we got through the songs. We didn't mess up. Um, and for the first gig for the first band, that's huge. I I think when I, the last time I saw the the video, many, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but I just, what I remember most was the energy of the crowd. I think we, you know, people really wanted us to, people really wanted us to do well. Like there was, I felt super, like lots of support people. There was just like, people were excited. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like people like were willing this to happen. Like they wanted us to be a band uh and and the best part about that night was um when i said you know when before we did our last song with panic our our which was our uh instrumental i just remember saying this is our last song and just want to say thank and at that point at some everybody just started to rush the stage like i didn't have to say anything but i just remember people just jumping up on the stage as you started to play the bass for for panic yeah and i just I just remember that whole song, not being able to see the band and seeing glimpses of you and somebody else, whatever, and Kenny, and just looking at each other, like, not believing, like, what the hell is happening right now. Um, You know, I'll never forget, like, you know, that, that was just, you know, it was incredible.
0: Yeah, it it was pretty incredible. And I remember I was so nervous that I forgot how to play some of the bass lines for some of the songs, but I mean, that wasn't what was important. You know, you pointed out, it was more, I think the crowd was rooting for us. And, um, and I should note that we opened for the New York citizens. And so Um, there was a crowd there that was, um, you know, one that knew who they were and was into ska. So the fact that there were two bands on, on the bill probably didn't hurt, but I would say you couldn't have picked a better first show. You know I mean literally I, I I remember walking in there and having a heart attack because um <laughs> I thought maybe there'd be like fifty or hundred people there were literally like it was packed. well when we dropped up our stuff, there was like fifty people in there um
2: when we dropped it off, you know we like, yeah, come back, and I don't think we had a sound check, you know it was like, drop off your stuff, you're an opening band, just you your' sets at this time, just be here around there and you'll put you on. we'll do a line check.' I'm like, fine, I didn't know what the hell a line check was and then when we come back, cause of course we get there early. I don't know if you told this, I don't know if you told this part of the story, but we meet the citizens who happen to be coming in for their sound check or finishing up the sound check. And I'm all starstruck. And I think Kenny's there and he's talking to them. And I think they're like, Oh, we need a place to crash for, you know, until we go on, we have like an hour, a couple of hours. And I was like, Oh, I live only like five minutes away. Let's come by to my place. And, we invited the citizens back to our place, me and my roommate, James, at the time. And um, we hung out with the citizens. Uh, Crazy, right? It, which was like, you know, our first show. And we're hanging out with probably one of the hottest, you know, ska bands at the time of the scene. The citizens and they're, you know, we're hanging, we're drinking, we're smoking, they are talking. Oh, thanks for letting us. They're changing in our bathroom. They're changing in our bedroom. And then they're like, oh, let's head back over. We head back over. We can't find parking. I'm like, what the fuck? Why why are there? We've parked, we found we find find parking. And then we walk into Scott Hall and they open the doors. And I remember shitting my pants because I saw (laughs) I couldn't see the stage because there's so many people standing in front. And I was like, Holy shit, where did all these people come from? Um, and that that's really the first time I felt really nervous. Like all the other time, I'm like, oh, it's gonna be a good show, we should be fine. When I saw like 400 500 people i really i was like fuck
0: yeah but i mean not, honestly those the, going through that experience and having that crowd see us was like honestly the the best possible outcome uh, and again we'd been rehearsing as a full band together for literally maybe about 4 weeks yeah at that point and so we we barely knew each other you know honestly and um you know i th- i think I like to uh, compare sometimes being in a band with being in a like um, an army patrol, right? When you right. when you're in a foxhole with a group of people, you bond, right? right. And even uh, though absolutely. we didn't know each other, we were going through this very intense Super experience intense. together.
2: Super intense. I mean, it, I mean, we went from literally let's hope a couple of people come to the show to. Uh, we want you guys to play the cat club with the toasters. We want you guys to play the court tavern. I mean, after that show, our next two shows were the court tavern and the cat club, uh, with the toasters opening up for them on Halloween, uh, in the city. Um, those were like our first three shows. Yeah, so Our first just like, was,
0: I mean, I, I was going to say it was like about as much of a whirlwind as, as we could have possibly yeah. uh, imagined. I mean, from when I met you in like the middle of August to, of 1988 to, Halloween so like literally like yeah. two, 2 months later you're opening later, for we're the toasters like, at the Cat Club in New yeah. York City. It
2: was insane.
0: It was insane. Just, it was, you know,
2: and everything is moving so fast and everybody was loving everything and you guys sound good and you know, I'm walking around campus now and people are recognizing me from the band now, you know, uh it it was it was just it was wild, you know. And the whole time I'm thinking, you know, my life's going to change. Like, uh, you know, at the time I thought, you know, I'm going to be on MTV and make a million dollars. But um, now I'm just like, it, it, I was right. My life did change for the better. You know, I, my experience in the music from that moment has just been amazing. Um,
0: yeah. It, it, it was, um, life-changing for, for definitely for me. I mean, you know, the fact that you and I are a still friends and B still make music together, I think is testament to, um, that experience, you know, this experience that we had together as young men, you know, I was 23, you were 21, right. Yeah. Um, when, when this all started and, um, it, it really was, uh, you know, one of the, it's been one of the most consistent, uh, things in my life, you know, um, other than family, um, being in, in, in that band or in different bands that have spun out of that and being in those bands with you are probably the most consistent experiences I've had in my life. You know, it it really, it is pretty extraordinary an extraordinary experience you know, to go from my early 20s to my mid 50s now is you know that's it's a huge amount of time um it is that that this is marked in my life so um you know it is interesting i think there's something about ska music you know you you do see um bands that are still doing it 40 years on the toasters you know rob yeah. Henry still playing music since 1981 bim scala bim on tour, yep. you know, this summer right now when we're recording this episode. Um, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, the Pie Tasters, you know, these are all bands with members in their 50s and in some cases their 60s who are still playing. So I think there's something to that. Yeah. Um, you know, that speaks to the music brings people together and then the, those people have pretty pretty um, memorable experiences together. Yeah, that I, I think,
2: you know, it's a... Um one thing that inspired me a few years back um, in, in London, they did a, The Return of the Rude Boy. Uh, it was an exhibit that they did. Um, I, sh- I should look this up. And it was just uh, like a little brief exhibit that they did at a museum that had artif- like little artifacts, like a sound system speaker. And then they had all these portraits of uh, rude boys, uh, past and present. Um, Pauline there's a portrait of Pauline Black it's one of them. And uh, you know, it's a lifestyle. Like ska, the music that we do, it's a lifestyle. It's not two-tone, it's not just uh um a hobby that w- we do on the weekends. Um, it's not just something that um, you know, it's not just the clothes that we wear, it's not just how we talk, or whatever. It's it's really a lifestyle. It's it's being your true self at all times. It's speaking up for the underclass for for the, for the underdogs, making, you know, it's, you know, calling uh, authority into question when, when things aren't right, you know, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the way you live your life. It's not just the music. And I feel that the experience that we've had through the music just inform the way we live, you know, everybody that I could think of that's still doing it in, in advanced years they're still being themselves. Like, you know, they're not, it's not an act at, at this point. It's like, it's who they
0: no, are. No, I hear you. Yeah. You know, I think it was very freeing for me, you yeah. know, to, to do this, to be, you're right. 100% to be who I am. Like this yeah. playing ska music and being in, in uh, bigger Thomas. Um, and then, you know, Rude Boy George and Heavens Be and all the other projects we've done together is um, allowed me to be myself and to have a, a sense of freedom I think that I wouldn't normally have had if I hadn't had these experiences.
2: Yeah. And, and, and again, it's just, you know, our, our story, you know, our lives are very, our lives are parallel. Um, And I think, you know, obviously it's no coincidence that you saw me on the train and all these other things and the flyers and the first one to respond. It's just, you know, Obviously, we. I feel like again, it's it's for me. It's just proof that we were called to this, <laughs> you know. We are together. We're friends for this long because that's we were called. We were called to. Yeah. Like you know, it was just this musical is how, destiny, right? Yeah. Like we really didn't have much to. I feel like we didn't really have a lot to do with it. We, I just showed up, you know. I answered, <laughs> an, you know. I answered an ad. You put up an ad. I answered an ad. That's how it started. You had an idea to get a band together and put up an ad, and I answered it. And then we got together and then it could have been a shitty band and it could have <laughs> lasted like six months and it could have been all over and we could have gone on with our lives and it would have been fine. But it just turned out that, you know, the first show we played had 400 people just finds out that the first show we go to before we play a show, we see two of our idols at the same show, right. you know, all these things that happen, yeah. you know, that you think
0: like are a coincidence are apparently not. No, I think they were, you know, I, I agree with you. I think they were sort of um, signals. Right. Right. A mess, you know, a, a flares in, the, in you know, in the, from the universe, like, you know, you're going in the right direction. Yeah. You know, that kind of and, thing.
2: And although, you know, things life twist in turn, but I think what marks our friendship and the reason why it goes so long is that, you know, it's the, it's the devotion to what we really are about. It's the music. I mean, you know, yes to each other and the friendship and all that stuff. But we, I think it's clear that we both love music and we both love this kind of music and, and we've made, you know, commitments and sacrifices to stay connected to it. No matter what happens in our lives. You know, I, I do have friends who have quote unquote grown up and say, well, you know, I used to be in a ska band, but you know, I had to get a job and get this thing going and, you know, no disrespect. And, you know, that's, you know, now it's a hobby and that's fine. Um, but for me, it's, 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 you know, I, I think there's something to be said about still pursuing what you're passionate about, no matter how old you are. Um, so the bands that are still out there doing it in their fifties, in their sixties, they wouldn't be doing it if they hated it. They're doing it cause they love it. And I think that's what this is all about. I think that's what your book is all about too. It's just a love letter. It's like, you know, this is. You know, we love this music and these are the things we've done to show our love and our appreciation and our gratitude for playing the music that we do. These yeah. are the stories, you know, these are, these are the crazy things that have happened in our pursuit to play this music that we love so much, uh, and, and live the two-tone lifestyle, which is not racist, not homophobic. It's, you know, it's welcoming and, you know, all that.
0: Yeah, no, uh, 100% agree. Um, w- with, all that, um, you know, definitely, I-, I think, you know, it didn't make sense to me to put the bigger Thomas story in Ska Boom. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable as the author sort of, of doing that, but I do think our story is, um, an important one. I mean, not just because it's my story and your story, but, um, you know, it was emblematic of a lot of other bands that were that were happening at the same time. You know, I've talked to um, John Bunkley from Gangster Fun. And, you know, in some ways the the panic Bigger Thomas story is very similar to the Gangster Fun story. So it's it's so interesting to me about these, you know, parallel experiences that that those of us who still do this had mm-hmm. in, a, in a particular point in time, you know, like the late eighties This really interesting to me. I'm still fascinated with the time that that you and I grew up before the internet, before cell phones, when, you know, you had to make an effort you, and if you had a passion for something, then you put all your energy into that passion. So I'm not saying people who start ska bands today don't have a passion for it. I'm just saying, I think our, experience is interesting from the eighties because there was no social media. There was no, um, it wasn't easy to be. It wasn't easy.
2: Yeah. It was not only wasn't it easy, but there was, I mean, again, your book points out there was, there was no, we were building the scene. We were currently in the process of building the groundwork of what, you know, a lot of the bands that we hear about today weren't around then the real big fishes and all this stuff. And, and, you know, those, whatever wave it is, but the 90s ska bands, you know, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be there with, without, you know, bands like us playing the music and, you know, obviously they, they were, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we're responsible for their growth, but we were actually out there building the scene, you know, I mean, all the shows that people talk about now, we were, actively playing. those, Yeah. Shows, I mean, it's, it, it is,
0: it, it, we, unfortunately, you know, that time we're also victims of that time because um, yeah. we had a nice run. We really did from 1988 to 1991, things were building for us. Things were getting more exciting. We recorded an album. We went on tour with a selector. We yeah. were on the New York ska live album. Um, and I think we were also sort of victims of what happens to a lot of bands you know, I, I like to say the way I describe the elevator pitch for my book is it's the human condition set to a ska <laughs> and reggae soundtrack. And as young men, I think we all got very caught up in the stuff around the edges of being in a band, not yeah. the not music, but, you know, the the ego stuff. and the the, ego. And, you know, we're going to be famous. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Quit your job. I'm not quitting my job. You know, right. I think this wasn't just, unique to us. This was something that happened in nearly every band, but yeah. I feel sad that we didn't get to experience the sky. I boom. do too. I,
2: yeah, I, I, think, um, you know, in referencing to the break, you know, the band, the breakup of the band and the, the usual, it, it, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't uh, shocking. It wasn't like, Oh my gosh, I've never heard that story before. It's the typical band stuff. I think it, it didn't have to be either, or it could have been, and it could have been both. Both could have worked if we just would have calmed down and worked it out, but you know how it is when you're 21 and you, you think you're hot shit and everybody thinks, oh, you guys need to get signed and you, what, you, you're still, you guys aren't full time yet, what the hell, you guys aren't, you know, and you feel like you're missing out and you gotta do all this stuff and people have to, you know, sacrifice children and give eight ounces of blood per day to make sure you're committed to the band, which is just
0: not necessary. Um, well, we learned that we learned that the hard way but honestly yeah. I, I felt that I was I'm glad that I was able to to not experience what I guess some people would consider the fame aspect of being in a ska band to 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 um, maintain the friendship yeah right I mean because there was a period of time when you and I were not on speaking terms, no, we weren't on and speaking if terms. If we had seen each other in the street, it's likely we might have gotten into a fist fight. So um, well, I can't fight; it would probably have probably been it, just been it words. would have been yelling and screaming. But yeah, the, screaming. the fact <laughs> is that our friendship hit the rocks because band yeah. broke up. And um, I'm grateful that through through being mature, mature younger men and seeing what was important, that we salvaged that versus all of what could have come along with potentially, you know, quote unquote, the success of, and let's be honest, the yeah. success of being in a ska band. Okay? I know. It's, <laughs> it's not like,
2: you know, we're not you two, you know, and look, you know, a couple of, I mean, two things I think about is like, number one, honestly, if we did have whatever that success would look like, um, you know, get famous or quit our job and do this full time. Honestly, Mark, I'm not sure if I would have survived. I don't, I, I'm not sure if I would have survived the trip. You know, to to the the Bigger Thomas uh, touring around the world trip, you know, because, you know, my lifestyle was a bit excessive back then. And uh, a lot of ours were and I'm not sure if we would have, you know, withstood withstood it. So I'm I'm grateful for that. Um, But I'm grateful for the fact that we had a chance to do it over again and i'm having more fun doing it now than we did before
0: yeah I would, I would say it's more fun in my it's been more fun in my 50s than it was in my 20s let's put it that way a lot way. more fun well i think you and i had to have this conversation um where it's more about making art for the That's sake it. of making art and That's not it. for anything else and once i accepted that i felt so much better i felt freed from my own Crazy expectations about that. This has to mean something. It doesn't have to mean anything. It just has to mean something to me or you or whoever we are writing the music with, and that experience that we share. That's the value that you get from it. What would you tell your younger self? Oh my God! Thirty years ago, if you could speak to him, you know, in 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 nineteen ninety one, let's yeah. say thirty years ago to the day, right? Because to be honest, yeah. I looked at the calendar, Roger, and we played our last show with the original lineup of the band on september 13th 1991 opening up for the special, Beat <laughs> special beats at city gardens in front a of a sold out show. audience that Such was as much show. there to see us as they were to see special because city gardens was our was our home and we oh literally gosh. broke up that you know, in the dressing room after that what should have been a triumphant
2: experience in uh, the coronation that should have really been like the coronation of and the and, and we
0: were we were at each other's throats before that show and and i <laughs> think sound it, check i
2: remember sound check was very tasty. it was very
0: intense <laughs> and very uncomfortable but that propelled us i think it might have been one of the best live shows we ever put on there, was a, oh, there yeah. was a real release of energy in that for that show and so i've always you know that for me stuck in my head for a really long time i i got i was so hung up on the fact that
2: that oh my show gosh. should have
0: propelled us to the next you? level, and it probably would have.
2: Oh my but gosh! But we
0: broke up. So, what would you tell your? You know, I've spent a lot of time in my head talking to my younger self. What would you tell your younger self about? You know that experience almost thirty years to the date that we're recording this this episode. Yeah,
2: I think the biggest lesson, and i said it before, it's like, um, it, it's it's rarely either or; it's usually and. That's what I would tell my younger self. You know. Uh, I I was very black and white. It's either this or that. But it's usually this and that. Look, the 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 um that City Garden show with Special Beat, when we were performing, it was the first time I had I literally had three or four girls at the front of the stage screaming every time I did something. Like I would like jump in the air and they'd scream and I'd do something. I was like, what is happening? Afterwards, like I signed autographs after that show. So I just was like you know, uh, I thought this was so serious, and I think if I would to have told my younger self, like, you know, you think it's either or, it's just and. So, don't think you have to make these hard, intense choices about everything. Just, you know, chill. You know, if somebody says something that's not in your in your business plan or in your life plan of the director of the band, consider it. Don't you know, I, you know, that, 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 that's what I would tell myself. You know, I, I think I would have enjoyed the band a lot more if I just would have just l- l- learned early on that with all, with any success, with any whatever perceived success, there's going to be real challenges and you have to really be willing to deal with those. You know, I really thought it was going to be a magic carpet ride. Our feet wouldn't touch the ground. We would get to a point where the money just flows in and we float, you know, we get massages before every show and we get, you know, they we get dropped on stage with angels and they pick us up. Like, I really thought that was going to happen. <laughs> I really <laughs> thought we were going to be You 2 and like, you know, entourage and all that. And when it didn't happen, I thought it was all for nothing um, as opposed to saying, you know what, you know, that's, uh, you know, there's good and bad. And, and, uh, and the art is in, you know, and another thing I would say is like the art is the journey that that's the art is the whole point and enjoy yourself.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Roger, for helping me to tell the bigger Thomas American ska story. I sort of struggled <laughs> a little bit with, uh, you know, do I tell it, do I not tell it? And I, and I, I decided, you know, some people might be interested in hearing about our adventures, there at the you know the late 80s and the early 90s but but more just to celebrate uh our sort of extraordinary relationship and friendship and what that's meant to I think to both of us but also you know how we've developed from young men into middle age and you know I would say for the better you know yeah so yeah um, so
2: I still I- think there's a uh there's a miniseries, a Netflix miniseries about the bigger Thomas story.
0: (laughs) Well, that, and there's, you know, the gangster fun story and the Bim Scala Bim story. And, you know, um, the boiler story, it's funny. They're, they're all, if you have, if you have read my book, then you know what I'm talking about. Like every one of these stories is a miniseries and that's what sort of makes them interesting. It is, you know, really, um, how different people went through this somewhat similar experience and how, you know, it changed them for the better or for the worse, but that's what makes it interesting. Um, Absolutely. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Skaboom Stories. The book is now available from DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com. Thanks for listening. Roger, thanks for talking to me. And uh, take care.